Welcome to Back Porch Bible Studies, where friends come and talk about what the Bible says about our God. My name is Deborah Geisels, and I'll be your host on this weekly podcast. You know, it's been said that the heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. So here, we'll study to know our God, and to know Him is to love Him. So, grab a drink and settle in for an afternoon of catching up and talking about our great God. Welcome, friend, to my back porch. All right, if you'll open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, we are going to look at spiritual blessings, and we're going to start to unwrap those blessings today. Before we do, let's, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, I just thank you for these, these sweet women. Thank you, God, for our time here to study your word and to be together and to um, just lock arms and hold each other up in prayer and to celebrate with one another and to um, just be able to sit here and talk with you. God, I love that we can do this together. I thank you for the freedoms of this country that we can meet without any fear at this time. God, I just thank you for that. It's such a privilege. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write these words and that they are straight from you, that you, you chose these words and you, you used Paul as a vessel to write these. And God, I'm excited to open this letter to the Ephesians and see what you have penned for us when you said that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms were ours in Christ. And God, I just pray that you will open our minds and our hearts. Lord, be the words on our mouth that we can hear what you have to say, what you want us to know and learn. And Father, we will give you the praise and the glory for you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we talked previously about who the gifts were given by and how we got them. And it was that God the Father gave these gifts. And we talked about how precious that is, that the Father would give the gifts, that not just the King of the universe or the sovereign, holy, righteous God of all creation, but Paul brings it in real personal that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has given these gifts. And then we talked about those who can receive them are who? Those who are what? Believers in Christ, right? And so when we look at this, all the conceivable gifts, all the spiritual blessings of redemption are being in Christ. I think it's, I think it's worth holding up here that we need to recognize that only through our salvation and our union with Jesus Christ are we eligible for these spiritual gifts. He he wants that all would have these gifts, but it is only for those who believe in Jesus Christ and the cross work of him and have given their lives over to him. So there's an eligibility to these gifts, and that's if you are in Christ. I think it's important. I think sometimes people read the Bible these days, and if it's written and they say you, that means anybody, but it's not. And, and Paul makes that very, very clear. How many times does he say who are in Christ. He reiterates that over and over. The second thing I want us to make sure that we pay attention to is that 
These first verses, who is Paul talking to? It's the we's. And the we's are? The Jews. Yep, the believing Jews. Not just any old Jew, but just the believing Jews. Because if you look at verse 1, he says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he sets the standard right there. It's as if Paul has one deep breath when he opens Ephesians. I mean, it's a good thing he wrote it because he couldn't breathe the thought that he had here. If you look through Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3, it's like one big breath of a run-on sentence that he has all this that he wants to share with the church. He is speaking to only two groups of people here. If you survey Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, you're going to see that Ephesians 1, 1 through 2, 10, he is speaking to just the believing Jews. Now, everybody's listening. Don't, don't be mistaken. But he's got these two entities of people who have come to the faith from completely different backgrounds. And so once he hits 2.11, he's going to start talking to the other group, the believing Gentiles. And all the believing Jews are going to listen to it. So I want you to fix this in your mind. Everybody's listening, but he's going to first address the believing Jew, and then he's going to address the believing Gentile. And smack dab in the middle, he's going to get excited. And he's going to have a little prayer. And then he's going to brag on the authority of Jesus Christ. And then he's going to address the believing Gentile. So I say that because as we look over chapter 1, he is addressing the believing Jews. And that reference their thinking when he's speaking here. Now the believing Gentiles are, are still sitting in the room. We've got everybody here. Everybody's here. But he's going to address them a little bit differently. I believe he's speaking from the foundations of our legacy. And this, just as I was falling asleep last night, I had this interesting thought. You know, in the wilderness, they had the tabernacle, right? And the tabernacle, they gave worship. That's where they met with God. But then when the tabernacle was built as a temple, what was added to the temple that wasn't in the tabernacle? Do you know? There was an outer court. Do you remember what it was called? The court of the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting with what we're looking at here? If the tabernacle, if, if God called out the Jews to be a peculiar people, to be blameless and holy before him, and to have this unique relationship so that the nations could see the relationship that this one God had with his people, that it was alive and active, do you remember what Rahab the harlot said about the Israelites as they were coming in to Jericho? I have heard about them and the wonders their God has done. Because all the other little gods, the little G's, were dead. They didn't do anything. Oh, they imagined that the sun god came down in the sun and the, the rain god came down with the rain. But honestly, guys, we all know there's only one true God. But they were worshiping all these other gods, right? Until they see God with the Israelites. And they're like, whoa, that's a real God. That's a God who controls 
the weather, the insects. I mean, can you imagine what that little lady heard from them coming out of Egypt and how these people were saved because of their God? Then you come into the temples, and the temples have an outer court. So I got up at 2 this morning because that thought kept going in my head as I fell asleep. I'm like, oh, I have got to check that out. Do you know that, the, that sojourners, we are sojourners, so non-Jewish people could come to the temple and give burnt offerings? I did not know that. They came from the court of the Gentiles. Now, they couldn't go inside, not yet. But then if you follow this through, then when Jesus is crucified, what happens in the temple? The curtain is torn, top to bottom, absolutely, so that all could come into the Holy of Holies. Just just in the construction of the tabernacle to the temple to the ripping of the veil, you see God opening up from this particular people that he chose from before the foundations of the earth to show his love and mercy and grace, to show this relationship. It was a laser focus for the whole nations to see. And then they were to go into all the world and proclaim him. As that moves forward, Jesus fulfills all of that, and the Gentiles are totally welcomed in. That's where we're sitting, I believe, in, in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. He's like, all right, y'all, I know you've been thinking in a certain way, and the Jews are going to have a certain tradition of coming and serving and worshiping God. The Gentiles have a completely different way. They, they haven't even known a real God. And we're talking universally. We're not talking individuals. So when he addresses this, I think he's moving in the same direction. And even though he was a, a minister to the Gentiles, he always went first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. I don't think he breaks cadence here. I think he's doing the same thing. As he's doing this, he is weaving our spiritual legacy from the Jews to the Gentiles. Because right in the middle, if you drop down, I, I was going to hit this later, but you got to see this. In chapter 1, verse 15, it says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He's wrapping up this address to the believing Jews while the believing Gentiles are listening, and he's saying, I am praying for you that the eyes of your heart will be opened to this new covenant that I am making along with the Gentiles. Do you see that? And then he goes, just in case you don't know, he, he reminds everybody of the authority by which these gifts are given. And he says, 
the end of verse 19. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He wants us to know that this is through Jesus Christ, that Jesus wasn't just a good man who walked on the earth, that he has been positioned by God as having all authority, all glory, all righteousness, all redemption, all the inheritances in him. He, he wants us to know that this is done by that Jesus that came through your lineage. I mean, I really feel like Paul would, I know I'm using a little of that holy imagination again, but I think Paul here would have really enjoyed going back and going, you know this Jesus came from the line of David and that David came from Moses and Abraham and the covenants that were made with those men are here. This is the Jesus that is making this all happen. He prays this prayer that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened because they're coming out of tradition. They're coming out of years of what they knew. So Paul prays this prayer over them because he knows, he knows that the blending of these two groups of believers is going to require a change in their thinking. He himself had fought the same change before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul, being Saul, went from arresting and persecuting believers to proclaiming the truth of the gospel, both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He speaks from an enlightened and humble heart. It might have taken him three years in Arabia with Jesus, but he now understands. He understands the old ways before the cross and the new ways since the cross. And he comes before these Jewish brothers and sisters and he prays for them. He prays for a spirit of wisdom over the new Ephesian believers in Christ. Okay then, we've looked at the overview of, of this chapter. Guys, let's dig into these spiritual gifts. There are five spiritual gifts or spiritual blessings that Paul's going to unfold for us. Let's dig in. As I broke this apart, I found that there were basically five gifts or spiritual blessings that Paul is going to unwrap for us. So the first gift that we see is in verse four and five. In love, he predestined us to adoption. There's your first gift. Your first spiritual gift is adoption. I know a little bit about adoption. I was adopted when I was nine, nine and a half years old. Our family had over 50 foster children in our home. My aunt and uncle had several foster teenagers in their home. And out of my eight grandchildren, half of them are adopted. So when it comes to this word adoption, I, whew, it strikes a chord with me. What is it about adoption that can't be from a natural born child? Chosen. Absolutely. Every time it's chosen. It's funny, when I was adopted, 
um, my name changed. I, I, I was a tailor and I became a Graham. And they changed it on my birth certificate. That bothered me for a long time because I'm like, but I'm born of that family. But they changed it on my birth certificate. I thought that was the craziest thing. My name changed and my culture changed. My father changed. One of the things that I know about being adopted and having lived with hundreds of foster and adopted family members, maybe not a hundred, that might be a little stretch, but not much. When we're talking about spiritual adoption, this is so beautiful to me. Do you know that in God's economy, in the spiritual realm of things, and these gifts are what? Spiritual gifts, right? In the spiritual realm, there are only two fathers. That's it. We either belong to one father or we belong to the other father. When we come into this world, our natural father is who? Satan. Absolutely. The, when, when they use the term in scripture, father, they call him the father of lies. lies. The father of lies. And God is the God of truth. So you've got two fathers and God chooses us from the father of lies. He changes our name. We're given a new name. We're told we're given a new name. We don't find out what that new name is until our glory days, but we're told we get, are given a new name. And we have a new culture. We have a new way of living. I remember we had a, a teenager come into our home, and she was only there for probably oh, less than a year, probably eight to ten months. I was so frustrated. She, she would get up, and she would do these things, and she was perky in the morning, actually. <laughs> And none of the rest of our family was perky in the morning. We were quiet. We didn't interrupt each other's quietness. We kept the lights down. We went down. We did our own things. We got our breakfast. We went to school. We hardly spoke to each other. When she got up, she was a chatterbox. She's flipping all the lights on. She's singing songs. And we're like, shh. And I remember talking to my mom about it. And she said, she just doesn't know your dance. I'm like, my what? She said, your family has a dance. Everybody's family has a certain way of doing things. And my mom called it a dance. And she doesn't know your dance. She's, she's stepping on people's feet all the time because she doesn't know their dance. You know, I think that's where these Ephesians were. They didn't know the dance. And so Paul's trying to teach them the dance. And so first of all, he declares that they are adopted. Just as Yahweh chose Israel to be his treasured possession, he also chooses the Gentile believers to receive the great honor and privilege of becoming his beloved spiritual children in Christ. That relationship with God was pleased to establish between himself and the Israelites in preference to all other nations. We read that in Romans 9, 4. In the nature and condition of true disciples of Christ, who by receiving the Spirit of God into their souls become the sons and daughters of God. You can, you can see that in Romans 8.15 if you want to cross-reference it. So what does it mean to be adopted? It means to be chosen. It means your name and identity are changed. That we take on 
the identity of Christ. And we should look like our Father. Isn't that good? The other thing that happens, the third thing that happens, so we're chosen as an adopted child, our name and identity change, and our culture changes. How was this gift given? What does it say? According to what? According to the kind intention or purpose of his will. In the Greek, it means to his delight, his pleasure, his satisfaction. It does. King James says good pleasure. The second gift that we see is in verse 6, and it kind of sneaks right in there. He says, according to his kind intention of his will, we have adoption, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Oh, my goodness. We need to hunker down a minute here and figure out what is grace. Grace is one of those words I think we gloss over. We don't always recognize the depth of that word. So I want to take a minute here and break it apart from the Greek word charis. It is a favor done without expectation of return. The absolute free expression of the loving kindness of God to men finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver, unearned and unmerited favor. When I'm being gracious in all my goodness, I still expect a thank you. <laughs> yeah? I mean, don't you? If, if you have given grace to somebody, I want it acknowledged for sure. But when God gives us his grace, it's without expectation of return. Guys, that's real grace. That's real grace. It is out of the bounty and benevolence of him. It's because it pleases him to give us grace. Charis, or grace, is the antithesis of erga, which in, is a Greek word meaning works. The two are mutually exclusive. <laughs> grace and works is exclusive. He doesn't expect anything in return, and nothing we do can earn that grace. He slaps this one down right after adoption. He wants us to know that that adoption was chosen because he loves us, because he wants us, because it pleases him to change our name, to change our culture. And there is no work that we can do. God's grace affects man's sinfulness. Not only does it forgive the repentant sinner, but brings joy and thankfulness to him. It changes the individual to a new creature without destroying his individuality. That's gracious. In other words, God says, yes, you're to be conformed to the image of my son, but I made you you, and nobody else is going to be like you, so I get you. I know you're going to be different than somebody else because I made you different, but I called you by the same grace because I love you. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 19, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. 
Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. If you jump down to chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. There's no works involved. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Charis is received by faith, transforms a man and woman, and causes him to love and seek after the righteousness of God. That grace that is given to us drives us to a full-on relationship with our God. It drives us to it. Because when we realize that he has given out of his bounty, because it pleases him, what a sweet gift. What a sweet gift. Do you see how these are starting to stack up? You've got this adoption, and then you've got grace. The next one is in verse 7 and 8. It says, In him we have what? Redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. It's that whole thing about grace again. So we've been adopted. The next spiritual gift we have is grace that drives us to be like him. And then we find out that he has lavished on us redemption. How many of you have ever had a gift card? What do you do with the gift card? You redeem it. You, you redeem that gift card, right? The, you don't have any money on the gift card, right? There's, there's no money, but it's worth something. And you can take it to the store, and that worth is exchanged. It's redeemed. Well, when we talk about redemption here in verses 7 and 8, he says it's a releasing effect by payment of ransom. What are we set free from? What have we been redeemed from? Sin. Sin, absolutely. All through the Old Testament, we hear about the Israelites being redeemed or set free from Egypt. Over 80 times, God references that he is the redeemer of Israel who has brought them out of Egypt. That bondage. So when we, when we look at the bondage of sin, being freed from the bondage of sin, does that mean that we are free from the power of sin? In other words, once you're adopted, saved by grace, and redeemed, do you still sin? Yes. <laughs> Anybody? Unfortunately. Any. <laughs> yeah. So what did we get redeemed from? The bondage of sin. And the judgment, yeah, absolutely, the penalty. Because Jesus on the cross paid for that. But I think one of the things that is a little bit confusing is if I've been redeemed from sin, why do I still sin? And Paul talks about that in Romans 7, verses 14 to the end. He says, I want to do what I don't do, and I don't do what I want to do, and and, oh, wretched man, And, and there's this internal turmoil. He's talking about this issue of, freedom from bondage of sin. 
The truth is, we no longer have to obey our own sinful desires. We don't have to listen to the father of lies anymore. My cousin came to visit one time and she says, Deb, she said, I always know what diet you're on by opening your refrigerator. And I'm like, yep, I bet you do. <laughs> and I told her, I said, you know, I, I can stay on almost any diet as long as there's no chocolate in the house. Because if there's chocolate in the house, I have to eat it. I, I have to oh, yeah. eat it. And I can smell out chocolate anywhere. <laughs> and she said something to me that was so profound that taught me about this. She said, Deb, chocolate is simply an inanimate object. It has no power over you. And I'm like, well, yes, it does. <laughs> it's in my cupboard. It's got plenty of power. And she said, no, it doesn't have any power over you. The only power it has is what you give it. This gift of redemption in verses 7 and 8 is you are no longer bound to obey sin. It doesn't have any power over you except what you give it. Mm -hmm. And that's something sobering because the truth is we've been redeemed. That's a good gift. Paul writes, when he writes to the Romans in Romans 8, 1 through 4, he says, So now, therefore, there is no condemnation to those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our own sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. It's part of the grace that now we follow the spirit. Our debt was paid in full, sins were forgiven, and the power over us was broken, making us holy and blameless in his sight. That's a good, good God. All right, let's move on to the next spiritual blessing. The fourth gift is that he made known the mystery. The mystery. Could he be more? Mysterious. <laughs> yeah, could he be more mysterious? He says this mystery in verse 8, 9, 10. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intentions. There's that kindness again, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things in the earth. What is the mystery? Any ideas? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, Paul t uses the word mystery over 21 times in his letters. Isn't that crazy? And each time he uses that word mystery, 
It is involving a wonderful declaration of spiritual truth revealed by God through divine inspiration. So what is a mystery? By definition, mystery denotes in general something hidden or not fully manifested. And, and mystery just means letting us know something that was not yet revealed. So it, it's not spooky. It, it's not hocus pocus. It's just that God has not yet revealed it. And now, now he's revealing it. And so the things that he's going to reveal through these three chapters, he brings up the mystery once again in chapter three, verse three and six. And he refers back to this mystery. He says in, in chapter three, verse six, well, let's, let's back it up to verse three, that the revelation there was made known to me, the mystery as I wrote before in brief. When did he write it before in brief? Oh yeah, in chapter one. He briefly mentioned mystery in chapter one, but now he's going through it a little bit more. He says, by referring to this mystery, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. He's defining mystery. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So when we talk about the mystery, I think it has two parts. I think the first part is that we are saved by grace. He, every time he brings this up, he's surrounding it with this grace versus the law. Because remember who he's talking to here are the Jews. They felt they were saved through the law of Moses. And, and yet, how many times does he mention grace right here? around this. So he's talking to them that this, this mystery is by grace. They don't have to earn it. They don't have to have so many sacrifices. They don't have to have the Ten Commandments, that God has written those things on our hearts. And it is through grace, not the law, so that they can't earn it. God has always been full of grace, and people have always been saved by faith in God. Even Abraham was through faith, not by what he did, not through his circumcision, he was saved by faith. God did not choose between the Old Testament and the New Testament. His grace was demonstrated through the law by providing the sacrificial system to cover sin. Jesus was born under the law. He was born under the law and became the final sacrifice to bring the law to fulfillment and establish the new covenant the mystery. Now, everyone who comes to God through Christ is declared righteous, not self-righteous, which is what the law provided, right? Self-righteousness. Some saw this new demonstration of grace as dangerous. What would keep someone from casting off all moral restraints if they were under grace? Paul fully addresses that. Remember I said a couple weeks ago that Ephesians is a mini book of Romans. We're going to keep referring to Romans. But in Romans 6, Paul talks about this moral restraint. So if you want to, to read more about that, go, go back to Romans 6. The mystery. So it is grace versus law that we are saved by grace, that our adoption is by grace. 
The second part, the mystery, is what we just read in chapter 3, that the Gentiles also have access to the saving work of Jesus Christ. And then the fifth spiritual blessing that Paul unwraps for us here is that the Holy Spirit is our guaranteed sealed inheritance. When you are adopted, you become the children of that father. The father of lies inheritance was straight up death, eternal death. But the inheritance of the father, our father God, is so much more. And he will begin to unpack that inheritance. We have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have union with Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but I cannot, I cannot wait to hear Jesus' voice with my own ears or to smell him as he walks by, just his fragrance. I want to see him with my own. I cannot wait for that. If that was my only inheritance, I, I think I'd be satisfied. But God is like, no, I have so many things to give you. And so when we think about this inheritance, to have that spiritual blessing, the truth that we have obtained heavenly inheritance, he says in 11 through 14, for now we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Is the Holy Spirit a good guarantee? Absolutely. Because he's God. He is part of the triune God, right? And God doesn't tease. He is our engagement ring. He is our engagement ring. Yeah, we did talk about that last time. This seal, which is interesting because back in Paul's day, when a king would seal a document, he would pour wax on it, and then he would stamp the wax with his signature ring. And that didn't get opened until it arrived. The Holy Spirit is our seal. Everything written in the contract between God and us in that covenant is sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be broken until the Father opens it. And that will be in glory. As I'm reading through these gifts, I am like, God, you have given us. They're, they're spiritual gifts, right? But what has he given us? He's given us adoption. He's changed our name, our location. He's given us grace, unmerited favor, without expectation of return. And he has already enlightened us to these things. It's already truth within us. And through the Holy Spirit, we can access those truths. The riches of his inheritance, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the passing greatness of his power toward us who believe? He wants us to know the fullness of our adoption. Not just when we get to heaven. It's not just a, a ticket to ride. It's life here. And I think so many times we get discouraged in this world. We're like, oh, the chocolate's calling my name. And maybe that's chocolate chocolate. Maybe it's a sin that you just can't seem to shake. And you're like, I can't stop. You fill in the blank. But the truth is, if you are in Christ, it doesn't have power over you. The only power it has is what you give it. Because you have the power 
of the Holy Spirit. You have the wisdom and the knowledge to overcome. And, and it isn't just for today. It isn't just for what we're doing in this world, but it's for all eternity. We are headed to a better place. This life is just temporary. And so many times we get wrapped up in where we are and we get discouraged by what pulls us down, whether it's the circumstances or our sin or the, the heart-wrenching trials that we face or that our loved ones are facing. But the big picture, this isn't all there is. That heaven's coming for those who are in Christ. There's an inheritance and it has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so when we are down, when we are discouraged, when we are worn out, we, we need to think about these gifts because they're energizing. They get, us, they get us going. That I can be an overcomer. I can, I can do this. If we look at our, our spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms and we keep focus on where our home is and the blessings that will come in it, yes, he's given us power to endure here, but ladies, the good stuff's coming. Well, I hope this has encouraged you. I hope it has blessed you with the spiritual blessings that Paul has unwrapped for, yes, the Jews, but then we're going to see in chapter 2 and 3 that it was also for us Gentiles, that these blessed gifts are ours as well. So next week, we will start chapter two, and I hope to see you back then. <laughs> back Porch Bible Studies is a ministry of women in Christian leadership. You can find this podcast on your favorite podcast form, or go to womeninchristianleadership.com to find the many ways women in Christian leadership can help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Back Porch Bible Studies would like to thank their sponsor, the faith-based business of Millennium Metals in business to serve Christ.